I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. Trey guys, we're back together again in person. Yes, which is indeed. Awesome. Scott's in the house. Bill's in the house. Scott's up from the Carolinas, and it's good to have him here. Yes, lovely down there, but it's nice to be back. Good to have you. Well, so today we're recording on Thursday, June fifteenth, uh, in the afternoon, and Catherine Ty has given a speech where she calls for a fundamental break from past trade policy. What does that mean? Well, in some ways, the speech had similarities to the remarks made by uh, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan uh, a few weeks back. If you step back from it, trade policy is sort of a three-legged stool. One leg is economics, and there's a lot of good reasons to think that trade economics matters. It's a real thing. It has major value. And you've got to manage policy to get the best for your economy in any transaction. Second leg of the stool is foreign policy, which has always been a component of at least American trade policy and almost everyone else. The third leg is domestic politics, because ultimately these in a, in a society ours, like a constitutional republic, you've got to have agreements that are approved, that are generally have popular support, and that the legislature makes them part of U.S. law and that we live up to our commitments. So economics, domestic politics, and foreign policy. The speech is mostly about domestic politics. And that's the disappointment. And I understand why she's doing that. But she's neglecting or dismissing some very important economic effects of trade that are going to be hard to replace. So there is a long been complaints about the distributional effects. Some people get ahead and, and some don't when the economy grows or the economy changes. But the most reputable analysis on a macro level of trade, uh, the, the effects of trade policy in the United States is that we have about $2 trillion larger GDP than if we had not entered into these agreements over the last 40 years. That's about 10% of GDP. So our economy would be literally 10% smaller. Now, outside the United States, trade policy has, over the last couple of decades, combined with the technology that has revolutionized the world, has probably been the be best cure for poverty in world human history. And so those kinds of things are actually really important in people's lives. They seem to be absent from uh, Ambassador Ty's thinking, and I'm not sure why. I think she does a wonderful job of trying to create an intellectual justification for what is essentially a political decision, which is what Scott was referring to. When I've talked about this in, in speeches, there's two lines that run through the administration's thinking. One really is philosophical, and I assume Catherine buys into that because that's what she's articulating, which is basically that past agreements have not served our workers well. They've served corporate interests and executives well. One can debate that, but th that's their view, and they're trying to construct a policy that treats workers better, and they're trying to sort out exactly what that means, which I'll get to in a minute. The other part of the argument, which is implicit, in, in what, but very clear in what she said, is, is politics. These guys are all survivors of the TPP battle of 2015 and 2016, which was a terrific intra-party battle over the Trans-Pacific Partnership. 
And I think in 2020, even during the election and after, they made a decision. They don't want to go through that again. They don't want to divide their party on trade issues, which has been a source of division in the, in the Democratic Party for a long time, going back to NAFTA. Parenthetically, I'd say if you look at poll data, it's not a 50-50 division. It's more like 80-20, with most Democrats supporting trade and supporting trade agreements, but organized labor not, and, and the progressive wing of the party not so much. But and those are party those are elements of the party that play a very important role in finance and organization. So they attention must be paid to them, and it is. And they just don't want to have a fight. But the consequence of saying you don't want to have a fight or deciding you don't want to have a fight is then you know you you have to you basically you outsource your policy to your left wing, and you don't do what they're against. You may not do what they're for. I mean lines get drawn here, but you don't do what they're against. But Catherine, I think, and as USTR, it's her job, has to come up with a more elegant justification for what they're doing than that. Other than conceding to the left. Yes. I see. She's never going to say, you know, we just don't want to have a fight with Elizabeth Warren. She's going to say, you know, this is a noble policy. We're yeah. helping our workers. We're helping sustainability. We're helping the green economy. And th that's all true. I mean, there's nothing not true about it. I mean, the irony of it is that, and, and she's explicit about that, she sort of made efficiency into a bad word. You know, past trade agreements are, apparently were bad because they focused on reducing costs and promoting economic efficiency. Hmm. And that is apparently not good enough anymore. And in a way, she's turned a corner from 2021 and 2022 arguments where the argument tended to be, we can do all this good stuff and it won't cost anything. You know, it's all free. And now, and she was explicit about this today, now, he says, we recognize that there will be costs. Cost will go up. Prices are going to go up. We will have a less efficient economy, but it's worth it because we are treating our workers better. And we are getting other countries to treat their workers better. And Noble cause. It's a noble cause. I think Scott put, made a good point, though, that, that when we get into actual negotiations, the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework being one, the America's Partnership for Economic Prosperity, I think it's called APEP, APEP being another one. We ask asking the other countries to do noble things. Uh, the other countries are not quite as noble as the United States. Right. Uh, and they want to basically know, what are you going to give us to be noble? And the answer is, these are good ideas. You should do them because they're good ideas. And I don't think it's going to get us very far down the road, but that's the plan. And she's done an excellent job of articulating it. Yeah. For, right. For me, the question is, well, so what are you going to accomplish? And, you know, what do you think the effects are going to be of this policy? But more importantly, I, I listen to these conversations and what you have to believe about the U.S. economy are things that simply aren't true. The U.S. economy is the most innovative, most competitive big economy on the planet. And to take the idea that American companies need trade protection, American workers need trade protection to succeed is nonsense, okay? We, we've been, this is this this economy and high pressure capitalism that was invented here has served the, the citizens very well. Does it result in job changes and, and churn in the economy? Of course it does. But so does stasis and so does neo-mercantilism or whatever you want to call this. The interesting thing she doesn't talk very much about is, is innovation. I believe in the excesses of capitalism, and I'm very sympathetic to a lot of the things that Senator Warren, for example, has proposed in the area of uh, financial uh, sector regulation, which I think is overdue and badly needed. But I kind of get off that boat when you think about, uh, you know, what has really stimulated uh, innovation and growth in the economy. And ultimately, it's competition that stimulates innovation. It forces companies to be better. And what we have had to be exposed to for the last 30 years particularly, has been international competition. 
now China, but, you know, all in, in the 80s, Japan, same issues, you know, and there were areas where they were better than we were and they were faster than we were. And that in turn made us better and faster. Were there job losses along the way? Yes, no question about it. But if you focus on, and we should have acted more quickly to deal with that at the time, but if you focus only on that, what you end up with is an economy that in the long run will be less competitive because other people are going to run faster than you are and you're not going to be in the game. And I don't, I'm worried that they don't see that. I mean, they, they see half of it. They say, you know, running faster is important and that's why we're doing the CHIPS and Science Act. That's why we're doing subsidies. That's why we're building our infrastructure. Uh, that's all good, but it kind of leaves out the fact that innovation really comes from companies. It comes from the private sector. They're the ones with the ideas. The government can provide seed money. It can put its thumb on the scale. Do this, we'll give you more money. Do that, we'll give you less money. Or maybe we won't let you do it, like export controls. But a lot of the decisions end up being made by the very people that they don't have any sympathy for which are institutional investors and corporate executives who are going to decide what part of the semiconductor and value-added chain am I going to devote my money to and where am I going to put it? And that's going to be a company decision. That's not going to be a U.S. government decision. All right. So if I understand this right, you think that in some way the administration's policies here are tone deaf to innovation? I think in the long run, that is what happens. If you look at it historically, Countries that manage trade and engage in policies that are basically focused on domestic production at the expense of, of trade end up being less competitive, and they end up being less job-creating in the long run. They focus on one of the three stools. They're doing a great job on the managing their domestic politics, but they're missing what is in the economic interest of the United States, and they're not really reflecting what they need from a foreign policy standpoint uh, to, to, to advance American interests abroad. So now there was a broader critique in the Wall Street Journal by one of uh, Ambassador Tai's predecessors, Bob Zellick, who pointed out that we're getting something that looks like and quacks like a command economy here. Trade policy was only one of the five points he mentioned. He mentioned subsidies, the shift in antitrust, which we talked about in a previous program. He talked about the uh, sort of mission creep by the SEC and other forms of regulatory advances that are that look and feel like command economics. And finally, investment reviews and those kinds of things. All of that's kind of back to the 70s, which is the point that Zellick made in his opinion piece. So trade policy is just a piece of this, but all of it feels like we shouldn't be surprised if the things slow down, uh, which is, uh, I think, regrettable. I think you got to go for growth, which is a proven result of open markets. Got it. Moving on, guys, I wanted to bring up the Taiwan Trade Agreement Implementation Act, which of course is a bipartisan effort to reassert congressional authority over Taiwan trade deals. Let me first ask, what was USTR's original approach on the US-Taiwan initiative on 21st century trade? I love this issue. <laughs> I feel a rant coming. Yes, we're, because we're it's close. About, it's about Congress reasserting its Article 1, Section 8 prerogatives. And as a denizen of the Hill, 20 years, that's, if you do trade on the Hill, the first thing you learn is Article 1, Section 8. Congress regulates interstate and foreign commerce, and they're finally coming back to it. The current administration has basically followed former Ambassador Lighthizer's strategy for Japan, where he indicated that they made a deal with Japan. They were not going to submit the deal to Congress to approve because it didn't require Congress to make any changes in U.S. law because the concessions were on the Japanese side. I mean, the way our law is structured, and it's expired now, there is no law right now that pertains, 
But when it was in effect from 1934 onwards in various formations, it basically set up a, a three-part structure. The Congress tells the administration, we give you authority to negotiate, and here are your objectives. Here is what you're supposed to accomplish. Part two, the administration goes and does that, presumably. Part three, they have to bring it back to the Congress. Congress has to vote on it. Part of the bargain that was crucial is Congress promises, assuming the administration adheres to the consultation rules that they set up, Congress promises to take one up or down vote on the agreement. They can't take it apart with amendments, and they can't stall it with a filibuster. Because it's an internationally negotiated agreement, you have to vote. You have to vote intact. That was the deal. That's expired. Administrations have begun to interpret that as saying, if there are no requirements to change U.S. law as a result of the trade agreement, Congress doesn't have to review it. We can just implement it because the other guys have to do everything and they have their own procedures. So Lighthizer didn't submit the Japan agreement. USGRs announced they're not going to submit the IPEF agreement. They're not going to submit the APEP agreement. And they're not going to submit the Taiwan agreement. Taiwan, listeners will recall, wanted to be part of IPEF. Decision not to do that was basically a political one. I think the other countries said they would have a lot of difficulty joining if Taiwan were in. So what the U.S. offered was basically the same thing separately. And frankly, I think it may end up being a better deal for the Taiwanese because I think the U.S. administration really wants to be helpful to Taiwan economically. And it's also on a faster track. So they finished part one of the negotiations. They reached agreement. They signed something. And they're going to go on and do the rest. That was the easiest part, the lowest hanging fruit. Now they're going to go on and do the harder part. Presumably by the end of the year, the Taiwanese told me they think they'll get it done by the end of the year. But what the Congress has done is get upset because— They tend to do that. I have— Said this before. <laughs> Scott's left. <laughing>. In the last <laughs> 40 years, there has never been a trade agreement where Congress was happy with its level of consultation and participation. They are never happy. Their view of the process is the administration should come up and say, we don't know what to do. Tell us what to do. The administration's view of the process is we'll give you a two-hour advance notice on our decision. Somewhere in between is the truth. There's always tension. I'm advised, I did an off-the-record briefing uh, last week with somebody from the Hill who's involved in this who said that on a scale of 0 to 100, congressional frustration is at about 99 right now. And she obviously knew this was going on. This was not, this bill had not appeared at that moment, but they've been working on it. And it's a brilliant bill, actually, uh, because it says, first, it just sort of takes the bull by the horns and says, we approve the Taiwan Agreement, the first one. Nobody asked them to, but we're going to approve it. Second, we require you to submit the second one for approval. And here are the procedures you have to follow in order to do that. And you have to give us the text before you give them to the Taiwanese. You have to give us the text before you make them public. You know, you, there's all these hurdles that they've set up, which actually are more onerous than past law, than the ones from the law that expired in 2021. I don't think the administration has said whether they're for it or against it yet. But Well, I mean, this, is, it, is this, Scott, is this a good way of going about it? Well, look, uh, Congress is is doing what Congress does, which is forces its prerogatives to be and adhered to. And they did to. it unanimously. This was yeah. 42 zip. When was the last time the Ways and Means Committee did anything unanimously? Can't remember. And that's it, truly bipartisan. It's an astonishing statement. And look, as much as I know everybody in the executive branch thinks dealing with Congress is icky, and it is icky from time to time, and you get caught in the outrage cycle, and it's it has its unpleasant side effects, but here's what's in it for them. If they engage the Congress and get the agreement to the negotiating objectives, they're not forwarding some Biden administration project on Taiwan. They are speaking with the authority of the government and people of the United States. 
They have the, the whole of government and the people and people's elected representatives behind them. It's a much stronger negotiating position. Yeah. And that's really saying something if yeah. you can accomplish that. Well, it's also there's an irony, too, because from the standpoint of the other countries, they tend to want it to go to Congress yeah. because that'll make it permanent. You know, if it's an executive agreement, the next president can just throw it out. So if it's implemented into U.S. law, it's a lot more complicated. You always do better when you consult Congress than leave them out. Oh, I yes. think so. Because they have ways to get even, you yeah. know. And they, and they do. Yes. They exercise those ways. The so, same bill has been introduced in the Senate, also bipartisan. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the House will ask first because it's a revenue bill, technically. But I think it's going to make it – we'll see if the president vetoes it. It'll be an interesting yeah, I think it, I think it passes with big margins, and uh, it will be very difficult to veto. Whether veto-proof – I don't like to get into those games, but it'll be very difficult to confront the united Congress. Well, yeah, and I, you know, I would think, given Biden's record in wanting to work with the Congress, this is not something he'd veto. I wouldn't think so, but there will be people in the administration telling him to uh -huh. because they have the traditional attitude toward the Congress, which is, it's icky, <laughs> yes. as Scott would uh -huh. say. Uh -huh. So, yes. The other interesting question about, though, is that this is just the first foray. I think if this passes, you're going to see it on IPEF. You'll see it on APEP, and you may see a general negotiating authority one yeah. that changes the terms of what has to be submitted. I mean, that brought me to my next question. Does this mini TPA become a blueprint for a future? I think so, yes. And actually, that's from my personal point of view, that's good because we have a working group at CSIS that's working on exactly that question. Of course we when do. When should agreements be submitted and when do they not have to be submitted, which turns out to be a really complicated legal question. This case, it's finessed because it's about a one single agreement. And Congress just simply says, this one has to be submitted, period. So there's no debate. But if you're going to have a general law that says some agreements have to be submitted, then you have to start making definitions about which ones those are. And we have a working group, and it's it's fun to listen to these guys because, uh, you know, there's a number of former negotiators on it, and their view is nothing should be submitted to Congress. We should get to do what we want. Uh, there's a number of former Hill staffers on it, and their view is everything should be submitted to Congress because it's the Congress. So we've had difficulties landing in a place. And I think the Congress will too, but they may just, it may just be a blueprint for one, you know, one off things. Next IPEF, next US UK, maybe next Kenya, next the American prosperity thing. We'll see. All right. We'll be watching that. Speaking of bills, let's talk about the leveling, the playing field bill 2.0. What are the major provisions of this and how does it actually attempt to level the playing field? It's left over from Last year, it was part of the House trade title, and I think it was the Chips and Science yes, bill, correct. all of which got dropped kind of without prejudice. I mean, it was just, I think people just thought it was too big a too big a lift for that particular bill, which is really about something else. So it all got dropped. It included other things, GSP renewal, miscellaneous tariff bill renewal, trade adjustment assistance renewal, and it's all coming back. Senator Schumer uh, announced a couple months ago that he wants to have a China bill 2.0. And he didn't roll one out. He just said, we're going to do one. And that's given rise to, you know, this cottage industry of what's going to be in it. And at the head of the line are all these things that got dropped. This particular thing is bipartisan. It was originally Sherrod Brown and Rob Portman in previous Congresses. Now it's Sherrod Brown and Todd Young from Indiana. 
and Bob Casey and John Fetterman, I think, is on it now and some others. I, uh, I don't know if Senator Vance is on it or not. And counterparts in the House, Terry Sewell from Alabama and a Congressman, I think, Johnson from Ohio. I'm not sure yes, about the name. That's right. And several others. If you look closely, it's really about steel. I mean, it isn't about steel explicitly, but all the people behind it are steel industry people. Yeah, that's all people. the Pennsylvania, Ohio, yes, Texas. And Alabama. It's about trade remedy laws or, or dumping laws. And, be, and because half the dumping cases are steel cases, it's about steel. That's the way to look at it. It's trying to deal with some genuine problems. And Scott will recall in our commission yeah. on, reaffirming, on affirming American leadership, we had some suggestions about this too. One of the big problems with, with dumping, which is selling below your cost of production or below your home market price or subsidization, is that these cases take a long time and cost a lot of money. And then there are ways around them. You know, there's always another move. So, you know, you find that the Chinese are dumping there's a, this is the real case right now. You find China's dumping solar panels. So you put big duties on them that knock them out of the market, and that worked. So then what happens is within three or four months, you discover imports of the same solar panels from Vietnam, Malaysia, Cambodia, and Thailand go way up. And you start asking, well, wait a minute. You know, they just didn't invent this industry in three to six months. These are probably panels coming from China being relabeled. And set on. That's called circumvention. Same stuff. Well, yeah, there's different ways to do it. I mean, if you if you just simply stamp made in Thailand on it, that's customs fraud, you know, and that's a criminal offense and bad things can happen to you. If you perform, you know, if the Chinese send you the cells and you compile them into a panel, that's more complicated. Okay. Because that makes it Thai product. It depends on right, how much the Thais have assembled. Yeah, it makes it how much if it's just simple assembly, probably not. I mean, there was a famous case about this, which I thought was hilarious, uh, because it wasn't a dumping case, but, you know, we have a 25% tariff on trucks. And I think it was uh, oh, Subaru, Subaru. The bolt of the seats in the back yeah, of the pickup Subaru truck. Yeah, Subaru discovered they could ship their truck, their little trucks. If they bolted two seats on, into the truck bed, this was the Subaru Brat. I remember that. 70s. And, it yeah. had two plastic seats bolted under the roll bar yeah. in a tiny little bed. That the qualified them as as, tr as cars, cars, which only had a two and a half percent tariff instead of twenty five percent. Once they got into the United States, they removed the tr they removed the seats, and they were trucks again. Right, but that solved the you know that circumvention. I okay? wonder that is circumvention for sure. Little plastic seat so, on the back, you know. I mean, hey, you know, give them give them points for creativity. But well, I wonder what a what a super a nineteen seventy Subaru Brat would go for today. I'm telling you, Brantrail.com uh, sold a nineteen eighty version of a small pickup truck imported from Japan for over $10,000. Wow. So that was a very nice truck. Yeah, uh, for, sounds like for being, it. For being 30, 40 years old, but still. It, it's so funny when you see this stuff from the 70s and 80s, and it's now like hip. Yeah, we thought it was junk at right. the time. So. Right, <laughs> Yeah, I, I like my 2023 car. Yeah. Look, Bill's, Bill's making a good point, which is that it's been a long time since we've updated trade remedy law, and it could use some updating. There are some things that, that, that don't work out as well as they should, and the length of time it takes, you can turn what should have been a remedy for unfair competition into a coroner's inquest. The industry's already dead by the time you get around to it. So I understand that. However, it is, it's got to be done with an eye toward what happens to U.S exported abroad and whether this conforms with the agreements we've made as, as, a, as a country right. about what, what ought to be in anti-dumping law and what, what doesn't belong there. So, right, right. So does, does this bill present a renewed emphasis, at least from Congress, 
on actually playing by the rules of yes. world trade. It has several provisions. One we haven't talked about, which is kind of a new thing that's come up. Most of these have to do with China, uh, as you might imagine. And this is the cross-border subsidy rule because the new China game is, thanks to the Belt and Road Initiative, is they're subsidizing plants in other countries. So hypothetically, they'll finance a, a steel plant in Egypt. So it's Egyptian steel. So it's not subject to dumping duties on China, but the Egyptians are benefiting from a Chinese subsidy. Under current law, U.S. law, that doesn't count. The subsidies that count are paid by the government to somebody in their country. So if you pay a subsidy to somebody in another country, we don't pick that up in our law. This bill would change that and allow for basically cross-border subsidies to be, um, we could impose tariffs to offset those subsidies. Uh, another provision is relates to what we were talking about. It's called su successive investigations. So we shut down imports from country A, and then what, we do, what happens is country A goes to country B and starts producing there. And so this would not automatically shut that down. But what it, the way it works now is the aggrieved U.S. company has to go and start a whole new case all over again with country B, pay another several million dollars because these things are not cheap, wait another 15 months for the outcome because it takes a long time before you get any relief. This would speed up that process and allow us, allow commerce to go after successive cases much more quickly. It would also set up timelines and deadlines for the circumvention issue that we were talking about earlier. It would give commerce additional authority to counteract other kinds of evasion of duties because this is a constant cat and mouse game. It would codify commerce's current practice of counting currency under evaluation as a subsidy. I'm not on board with that one. I think we've talked about that in the distant past, but this would put it into law. It wouldn't change anything because commerce is doing that already. And the weediest one they do, which I think the steel people will tell you is particularly important, is it provides new guidance, legislative guidance for dealing with what are called distortive particular market situations. Commerce, by regulation, gave itself authority to adjust. This is in dumping. And, you know, if, if, if you're going to get somebody for dumping, what you have to do is you figure out, you have to figure out how much it costs them to make their product, because then you compare it to what they're selling it for. And the difference is the dumping margin. So... Figuring out how much it costs them to produce something is hard, particularly if they don't want to cooperate. And in particular, commerce has discovered over the years, that there are some things going on in these other countries that are not uh, really within the scope of U.S. law, the way it's presently configured. And these are things that the other country is doing that may distort their production costs or their domestic prices that have not been identified in U.S. law. An example would be if a government has its own laws obligating it to enforce human rights or labor or environmental protection laws, and they're not doing that. You know, they're ignoring their own laws. This commerce, from a regulatory standpoint, wants to say that's saving, you know, that's lowering their cost of production because they're not enforcing these laws that would make things more expensive. You know, we can increase our dumping duties to compensate for that. The courts have been skeptical that U.S. law permits them to do that. So this bill would make it clear that they can do it. All right. Well, clearly there's bipartisan members who are behind this bill, but is there going to be bipartisan support, Scott? I don't know. And they, look, I think the fact that was carried over from a previous Congress where there was a fair amount of work done on it and they've gotten co-sponsors from both sides of the aisle is a good sign. But there's a tendency on these kinds of things to move faster than you, do, than you want to. In the end, you've got to make sure this withstands scrutiny of our own 
international trade laws, and and we don't do something with U.S. law that winds up hitting U.S. exporters because other countries copy it. Good point. I think it's in the iffy category because there are people that are going to be strongly opposed to it, namely the industries that use steel. Right. You know, and if you're in the steel user business, all everything in this bill is going to make your foreign imported steel more expensive, and they and have been which reliable. Will make domestic steel more expensive. Too. And they, yes, yes, because the steel industry raises its domestic prices to take advantage of the situation. So there's a, and there's a lot more of those people than there are steel workers, uh, and but politically, uh, probably the steel industry is in a better position politically. But if you just look at numbers, there's a lot more people that make things out of steel than there are people that just make the steel. So you know. Uh, I think it's uh, it's got some work, and, and which is probably be. a good thing because the blows through in current form, it's going to level the playing field about as much as the Inflation Reduction Act reduced inflation. So, good name, not uh, not a great outcome. It's not going to surprise the trade guys to know this, but it might surprise some of our listeners. There are dozens of communities online surrounding the Subaru Brat, and you can buy one for anywhere between ten thousand. And $20,000. And I got to tell you, these are 1980s models. They look really good. They're sweet little trucks. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I could see, you know, this being a little mini surf wagon here. But do they have the plastic seats in the back? Well, so one of them actually does. And I wondered whether they, you know, redid that just to, you know, <laughs> humor the trade guys and could be. be fully maybe, original. Maybe they have some uh, some small people in their family that fit in the, <laughs> in the little seats in the truck bed. Well, you know, in... 2023, you probably don't want to put small people in the back seat of a <laughs> pickup truck, yes. especially one from the 80s. Right. Do they have seatbelts installed? Do you suppose? I just don't Back in the 70s, I guess you didn't need to do that. No, nobody wore seatbelts in the 70s, in the 80s. I guess in the 80s, too, people, so, you know. <laughs> people in the 80s started wearing seatbelts, that's for I sure. Wore them. My 65, I had a 65 Mustang. It was my first car. And it had Don't you have a 65 Mustang now? I wish I did. Biggest mistake I ever made was getting rid of that. I could get a fortune for that yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. It was gold, Ooh. four-speed, yeah. air conditioning in 1965, if oh you can believe that. Uh, factory air was, was a rare option. Run by the proverbial uh, little old lady with 19,000 miles. And I made it, I was stupid. I got rid of it. And I should never have done that. So now I have another one, uh, 2017, which is a great car, except it's made out of aluminum foil. Right. You know? Don't run into a pillar with it. Bad idea. I Multiple bad ideas. You should see the body. It doesn't do it well. Well, I, f I feel you, Bill, because I wish that my friends and I had had the foresight to buy the house we lived in our senior year in college at Tulane, one block off of Magazine Street. We probably could have gotten it for less than $50,000 today. It's easily a million. You know, wish we had done it. That's uh, that's why shows like that seventy shows are popular. You got it. All right, guys. Back in the day. Great to see you in person. We will be back next week. Thanks. To our listeners, if you have a question for the trade guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the trade guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.